Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, your host here on Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Grateful to be co-produced by my pal Tristan Drew back in the OHIO. And of course, we have Ronnie Nathan, who happens to be my dear old dad and uh, a rapscallion, if I do say so myself, and co-host. And today, we're really lucky to have G.T. Givens. Uh, (laughs) Do you ever go by, does anybody ever call you that, G.T. Givens? I don't think anyone has ever called me that, although uh, I have a vague memory that my grandpa, for whom I am named on my dad's side, was called G.T. Oh, man. uh, By people who knew him. But uh, no, I've always gone by Tommy. So (laughs) there was one of Jay Cameron Carter's classes that we crashed one time, and he was going, I think it was the first class of the semester. And he was going down his attendance list. And you were the third person who went by your middle name. All three of whom, do you remember this? No. All three of whom's first name was is George. <laughs> you don't remember that? I just thought it was remarkable. Three different people who go by their middle name, all three of whom's first name is George. Anyway, <laughs> so Tommy. Tommy is the Associate Professor of New Testament Studies at Fuller Theological Seminary, having received his doctorate from Duke Divinity School author of We the People, Israel, and the Catholicity of Jesus, as well as several academic papers with a focus on New Testament ethics. But uh, as you might be able to tell already, I know him as Kim's hubby, uh, a dear old dad himself of four four kids, a great friend and mentor, and a really interesting dude with a knack for making a little bit of good trouble. How you doing, pal? I'm doing okay, man. Um, It's a delight to be here with both of you guys. How you doing, uh, Pops? I'm, I'm good. I mean, I'm good. Is Tommy aware of the fact that Ronnie is my middle name? Did you know that, Tommy? I did not know that. Yeah, he goes by H.R. Nathan, which sounds uh, ominous these days. I don't know. H.R. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you want to share your first name, Pops? Hyman. Hyman. Yeah, it's a beautiful name. In- Hyman's a beautiful name. <laughs> <laughs> In Hebrew and Yiddish, I guess it's, uh, it's a beautiful name, but... Uh, Anyway, so uh, so Tomas, um, you grew up in SoCal. You were a PK. You were a pastor's kid. How was that? Well, for me, it was a relatively stable and I think healthy upbringing. So I was blessed to have loving parents and uh, two fine siblings, and of course. Uh, I suppose it's true that pastors' kids um, often deal with uh, various kinds of pressure that can lead them to try to buck the family tradition. I probably felt a little bit of that, but 
you guys will probably know that my dad wasn't exactly a typical pastor either. You <laughs> pastor know? Tom. Yeah. Yeah. He, he thought that some of his main outlets for Christian service were things like being an umpire, a baseball umpire in little league baseball and uh, you know, being a friend uh, to people in the church community in need. So that did spill over into a, I think a life with my family um, that was not, not really uh, full of inordinate pressures, at least as I remember them. Um, but of course it did kind of shape me as part of this uh, evangelical Christian movement that my dad was a significant figure in. And what does that mean, Tommy? What's an evangelical Christian movement? Yeah, that's a good question, Ronnie. I think that the term itself, evangelical, is uh, one that has been in flux for quite a while, and I don't own the meaning of it. So all I can say is how I, I guess I'm I'm using it to describe that, and that that was a, a movement of um, people in this case, suburban, uh, kind of north of Los Angeles, um, a large church that had a lot of focus on teaching from the Bible, a lot of focus on your personal piety, your personal commitment uh, to being a Christian. And there were certain sort of telltale signs of what that was. And a lot of emphasis on family, Um, I think a lot of emphasis on being a sort of upstanding citizen, you might say, as that was measured in our kind of predominantly white suburban context of North Los Angeles. And so that was the, that was the kind of, you know, uh, context in which I was raised. And that's sort of what I thought Christianity basically was. And of course it was an expression of Christianity, but I wasn't really familiar with other ones until I left um, that area and began to live in other places. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tommy, but I would imagine that the church that your dad, Pastor Tom, was first hired at uh, when when Grace was up in, I think it was up in Placerita, was a very, very different church than the one by the time that that he retired. Um, how, How did that trajectory that uh, the growth of that church, because we, you said your dad was at home being an umpire and in his sermons, you know, that's where, when I first became a Christian, we went to church for years and still have great relationships there. He'd often bring in his umpiring stories into his, uh, his teaching and, and, and he seemed, and then in later years, he went back to a small town church. Um, He seemed much more at home in that small, a smaller neighborhood community feel, if you will. How, how was that evolution on him and Sharon, your mom, who's just wonderful. We loved her, uh, your dad and, and you kids. So, you know, I was little when we made that transition. Um, when my dad started as a pastor of the church, I think I was about nine years old. And so I think I hardly knew how the church was changing. Um, as a child, uh, the little now that I can sort of 
guess, I guess, looking back on it, uh, is that the church obviously grew exponentially. Um, I think it was in the neighborhood of 800 or so people and then grew to well over 3,000 in the years that I was still living at home. And a lot of that, as I think you're suggesting, was probably attributable to the kind of charismatic power of my dad's teaching. Mm. Uh, he was, he was a really good teacher and not just because he talked about being an umpire or used hunting stories to teach Jesus's baptism or, you know, funny things like that, but because he had that gift of making people who were listening feel like he was talking to them and like they were understood. And I think we've all had people like that in our lives that give us that sense of connection of being seen and heard um, in some ways uh, being appreciated. And so that was attractive. And of course it was also a teaching that um, made a strong claim to uh, be based on the Bible, that people had the conviction should be the guide of their life as Christians. Um, But one of the things that I think was a strength of my dad's is that he was able to teach the Bible, not just to people who were familiar with it or knew kind of the lingo of the church, but was able to talk about the faith in terms that people who didn't spend a lot of time at church could understand, maybe even identify with to some degree. And that's probably also uh, partly why the church grew in the way it did. Of course, there are all kinds of other people involved, and it'd be a mistake to attribute all the church's growth um, to my dad. And I think it'd also be a mistake, quite honestly, if we're going to get controversial to say that the way that it grew was a good thing, Mm. because um, there's a tendency in this movement to gravitate around uh, personalities, especially male personalities of a certain background. And I think that that does make um, this expression of Christianity vulnerable to all kinds of seduction. Yeah. what's, What's interesting to me is that as as a Jew, the term evangelical means conversion, spreading the word. And you didn't say that once when you described what your view of evangelical Christianity is. And yet here we are talking about a church that grew uh, threefold under your father's leadership. It's just an observation, you know, on my part. It's a good point, Ronnie. I think that I just basically left those essential components out. Um, so you're right to say that they should be added because you're right that conversion was a really is a really important uh, kind of emphasis of the evangelical movement. Also, as you say, sort of sharing the word with other people, um, urging people to join uh, the movement themselves. The thing that I suppose we shouldn't lose sight of, though, is that often churches in the evangelical movement grow not by attracting people who are not Christians, but by attracting them from other churches Mm. uh, to a new one. So that doesn't mean that obviously people don't become Christians for the first time and convert in that sense. That does happen, too. But I think the growth, the explosive growth that we often see in evangelical churches is not people becoming Christian for the first time. It's their uh, being attracted to those new churches from other churches that they've, for a variety of reasons, found to be 
uninspiring, not satisfying, disappointing or whatever. Dad, to your point, uh, one of the experiences Tommy and I had that uh, brought us closer together was when I was part of the, uh, what do they call it? Short-term mission, mission team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was, I was one of those teams that went out to visit Tommy. Uh, Tommy had spent, what was it about eight or nine years in Western Europe? Yeah, this is something we haven't told the audience, but I basically went straight from college um, sent by this church we've been describing uh, to Spain Yeah, as a missionary. And yes, we received uh, teams from churches that were supporting us, short-term teams that would come for week, two weeks and work with us in Spain. <laughs> in our preparation for it, uh, this kind of speaks to your point, Pop. The um, I, I felt at times like we were in sales training meetings, <laughs> you know, and we had uh, KPIs, key performance indicators. How many, how many souls did you get, <laughs> you know? But you know, what's funny about that experience is, as we've talked over the years, is that um, you got a lot more than you bargained for. That, that, that was a formative experience, but not in the ways you might've expected. Is that, is that fair to say? Oh my word. Here we go down the rabbit hole, man. <laughs> I mean, what Ronnie said is so significant that there is this emphasis on converting people to become like us, you might say. Uh, in this movement. And I went to Spain with that mentality and really did not take seriously the fact that Spain was a country full of people who were already Christian. <laughs> but of course, that they was my initial reaction. You know, when, yeah. when Corey said you're, his friend's a missionary in Spain, as a Jew, I'm saying, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you, know, yeah. they, you know, from a Jewish point of view, they, 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 they threw us out of Spain if we didn't convert. Yeah, well, and in the in the in this church and this expression of Christianity that we're describing, you know, only certain kinds of Christian really count, mm. and other kinds of Christian don't count as Christian at all, and sometimes are deemed some of the most you know uh, hostile enemies of Christianity, even though they're baptized Christians themselves. So anyway, um, yes, when I went to Spain, I encountered a world for which I was ill-prepared and a life that exposed the inadequacies in my own formation as a Christian in ways that I could never have predicted. And so that led to a crisis for me. It was a crisis that was existential and also a crisis that was theological. You know, my thinking about the faith, my understanding of the faith was rattled by the sorts of life, community, culture that I encountered in Spain that I could see that I had no uh, really um, sound ability to understand. And so that, that was a difficult season, um, but of course it's one for which I'm grateful because it made me live with questions that I couldn't afford to ignore and resulted in a lot of change in my thinking on what it means to be Christian. Um, It of course made me want to dive deeper into the Bible, uh, the sort of authorities of the Christian tradition um, than I ever had. And that's what led me in some ways to where I am today teaching uh, the Bible 
uh, to Christians who are themselves trying to uh, sort of deepen their roots in the Christian faith. Was that the first chapter of, of your, your journey where you came across certain very uh, influential theologians, uh, some of whom aren't fully embraced by you know, American evangelicals. Tom Wright is given this brand, for example, of, oh, yeah. he doesn't like Paul kind of a thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, was that the first time that you started reading N.T. Wright and Karl Barth and some of those more controversial theologians? So interestingly enough, um, when I first started reading seriously in Spain, it was not um, what you would think of as Bible scholars or anything like that. I had just woken up to the importance of reading in general mm. and reading broadly. Yeah. It wasn't something that I had acquired in the way that I grew up. And so I remember reading Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky wow. uh, yeah. for the first time and just you know, having my eyes open to a world that I just didn't know I was a part of in some ways. Oh, there's that, there's that whole section of um, Brothers Karamazov. It's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's quite a third of this huge, long novel, but it takes up a good chunk of that novel that you could just use that as a Bible study. Yeah, uh, yeah. One of the characters, in it's, I forget if it's a dream, but he's in prison and he comes in contact with this uh, Jesus-like character or something. I just, I have a vague recollection yeah. of it, but I remember it kind of rocking my world theologically. Yeah, so that was the kind of stuff I was reading. And I had realized, Corey, that I didn't really have a very sound understanding of the basic terms that I was using in my sales pitch. <laughs> you rightly described it, you know, that I was talking about the gospel, but I didn't really have a good basis for what I was saying in the Bible. I was planting a church, but I was increasingly unclear about what the church is and what it's for. And so what I was moved to do was to go back to school uh, to study the Bible more seriously, to see if I could just come to a better understanding of those basic terms. And so I went to Talbot School of Theology, which is part of Biola University uh, here in Southern California. And that's actually where I encountered N.T. Wright. Oh, okay. And uh, other sort of Bible scholars in a setting um, where biblical scholarship was known. Um, and that was my first encounter with them. And of course, one of the things that I loved about that setting, and I bet Ronnie will appreciate this too, is that um, unlike some of the spaces that we would talk about the faith in my church growing up, where it was so often really tense and a lot of um, kind of hostility around certain questions or people at, at this school, it was suddenly really safe to talk about the Bible, to disagree about what it said, to debate what it meant. And that was, man, that was such a welcome um, development in my life. I had had some of that with my dad, I think, who was pretty hospitable to me. But suddenly there was this whole kind of culture of people that were committed to just pretty open conversation at the time. So, so can, I, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Because that, that kind of like keys into the question that was in my head when you started to talk. 
on a certain level, there's getting to be a lot of inside baseball. You're talking about being rattled theologically and existentially because you had certain preconceptions about what church meant and what religion meant and what Christianity meant. And that all got shaken up, but you didn't tell us specifically what those misconceptions were, or preconceptions rather. Misconceptions is a negative word. Uh, and you didn't tell us where you got to. Yeah. Um, and I'd be much more interested in the specifics of what you're talking about than talking around it. Sure. No, that's great. So I remember, Ronnie, that I had this kind of pitch that I was giving to people about their need to know Jesus in a personal way and to experience something in their inner life that was going to be a life change and, of course, was concerned especially with where they would go after they died, whether to heaven or to hell. And increasingly in Spain, I was forced to face the fact that people were asking questions about things like war. Should people be killed by massive doses of violence? And for what reasons? Uh, they were struggling with uh, basic questions of how to raise children in a rapidly changing society with a lot of estrangement between parents and children, between parents and grandparents. Uh, they were wrestling with questions about the deep division in Spanish society between gypsies and others. Um, there was all kinds of discussion of the degradation of the places that we lived in by virtue of the the industries that we relied on, you know, the, the destruction of landscapes, often out of sight, but nevertheless symptoms of them still, you know, in people's lives. And these were questions, Ronnie, that I had no Christian answer for. I didn't even have a Christian way of really engaging. Of course, I could rattle off a few Bible proofs or something, but I could tell that I just didn't have any depth when it came to such basic questions of life, of how to be a good friend. And, and that, that was what rattled me, that I was so obsessed with certain talking points in this sales pitch that I had inherited as what Christianity was about, that I had never developed any kind of richness in my thought, in my imagination, or probably even in the practice of my life about these driving concerns um, that I realized were in fact my own as well, even though I had not learned to acknowledge them as a Christian. And so that made me um, sort of think, well, you know, how should I think about war as a Christian? Um, what does the Christian faith give me when it comes to the meaning of friendship? Um, how do we share our life with one another so that we don't destroy the places that we're living in or destroy other people's places so that we can live the way that we want to where we do? You know, those were questions that began to force themselves upon me. And I could see that my way of, of understanding the Christian faith did not provide me with any really, you know, compelling way to go about addressing them. Um, so that's what made me want to go back to study 
um, and to develop what I hoped would be a more kind of, um, I don't know, um, um, more full, a more patient understanding of Christian faith and just life by the light of that faith. How did you determine that Duke Divinity School was the best place for you to work some of these questions out? So after I went to seminary at Talbot and was exposed to a wider range of writers about the Bible um, and about what it means to be the church and things like that, I uh, went back to Spain and then I was reading voraciously. Mm. I was sort of starting to chase those trails that I had been exposed to um, in seminary. And that led me to a handful of writers uh, that I found to be really compelling, not necessarily, you know, um, full of ideas that I was ready to embrace entirely, but I thought, wow, this is really compelling, good, serious scholarship. And I want to go study somewhere where these voices are understood and taken seriously as voices that we could learn from and build on. And that's what made me want to go to Duke. Yeah. Uh, so several of the books that had influenced me in those years were written by people who were teaching at Duke. So I kind of thought, well, what better place to go study than where the authors of the books that I'm finding <laughs> to be so influential are actually teaching people and we can argue about what they've written in their books. Um, so, so we could dive into any, any number of those scholars uh, Stanley Hauerwas is quite a character, and uh, the first time you met with him, I, there's a there's a story I recollect that uh, his his language surprised you a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, um, not using profanity, you know, was one of the telltale signs <laughs> of authentic Christian faith in the kind of white evangelical uh, context that I grew up in, and so to meet somebody who was so serious about the Bible and about following Jesus and so full of F-bombs <laughs> at the same time. You know, that was an anomaly in my life, a paradox. And uh, of course it was intriguing into a young guy like me, of course, I'm sure there was something kind of exotic and appealing about yeah. that too. <laughs> was, uh, I, I, we don't have to get into the specific scholars, but um, just even sitting in on three or four of Jay Cameron Carter's individual classes was so life-changing for me. Could you tell us a little bit about Jay and, and his work? Yeah, boy. I'm really thankful to God for Jay's presence at Duke and influence on me. I took a number of courses with him. I think I audited uh, many of them because I just tried to get into everything that I could. Uh, I took a course on Christology, for example, kind of the study of not just... Um, Jesus as presented in the Bible, but sort of the history of doctrinal reflection on Jesus. What, what reflection? Doctrinal reflection. Oh, got it. Um, I audited a class um, that was called Black Intellectuals and in Religion, I think. And Jay, uh, being a black man himself, um, a Christian, a theologian, 
was, I think, uh, one of the people at that stage in my life that helped me to realize a little bit of what it meant and what it means for me to be white. I had just been, uh, and this is typical, I think, of a lot of white people with a background like mine, I had been relatively oblivious to the role that race had played in the history of the Christian tradition and in the shape that Christianity has taken and its political influence in the United States and therefore also its influence on my life and my imagination. Um, and not coincidentally, this is partly, I think, what was the subject of a lot of my early conversations with Ronnie, because the, the role that race has played in the history of the Christian tradition, especially in the United States, is intimately uh, connected to how Christians have understood Jews. Um, and when I say how Christians have understood Jews, I'm thinking especially of how white European or Euro-American Christians have understood Jews. Could, could, you, could you change that to misunderstood? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be fair. Uh, but there is a deep sort of anti-Jewish tendency in this development of the Christian faith that I had not really ever woken up to or understood how that could possibly be connected to the division of the world between white and the rest, you know, people of color, uh, the division between white and black, and how that had actually informed the Christian imagination that I had inherited. So Jay Cameron Carter was a professor who helped me to have to face some of that history and uh, did it in a way that you'll know Corey from being in his classes was winsome, uh, was uh, full of music. Yeah, he's, and, he's largely the reason I'm so into jazz. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and so I'm just thankful that Jay um, saddled me with certain questions and puzzles and difficulties and even uh, claims that I needed to wrestle with and will probably be wrestling with, I'm, I'm sure, uh, through the end of my life. Yeah. You bring up an interesting point. Uh, this was going to be my extra topic, but I'll, I'll just drop this little ingredient in, in our conversation. Much of your work at Duke grappled with, as I remember it just personally, uh, a prevailing sort of individualistic, even me-centered ethos that certainly I, I don't think it's unfair to say permeates contemporary Christianity. My walk with Jesus, my personal relationship with Christ, my Jesus, my savior, that sort of language. And your response dealt a great deal with the peoplehood part of a pe the people of Israel, uh, or as Tom Wright's first volume in his big set of books is uh, the New Testament and the people of God. Fast forward a few years, because this was what, about 15 years ago. And many of our friends in the church do identify primarily as part of a group who also sees those outside the group as enemies. It's uh, often been referred to in the last couple of years as tribalistic. I'm afraid that our peoplehood is currently, just to be blunt about it, I'm afraid that our peoplehood is currently defined around Trump. Uh, those who will cheer him on and defend him, um, all are... <laughs> Biblical virtues be damned, and those who were appalled by his words and conduct. Uh, so, uh, 
to bring it back to your to your work, is this what you envisioned when you were talking about peoplehood? Well, that's a complex question. And I imagine a lot of the terms you've used will probably be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. Um, but let's just start by saying that my study of the Bible and work as a missionary made me realize that the, the Jesus movement that grew uh, from the Jewish community and, and was part of it was a movement that was fundamentally about community, about how the way people share their lives with each other and the kind of life that they build together and the challenges of relating to other communities. That's not to say, as someone might imagine, that individuality is unimportant um, or that people don't have an inner life that God cares about or something. Uh, I think it's a mistake to pit the individual against the community that way. Um, instead, it's important, I think, to see that uh, the kind of community that we see Jesus forming um, among his fellow Jews is one that is patient with all kinds of individual particulars, invested in that one lost sheep, you might say, um, but always as part of uh, the whole of a, of a community of shared life, which is what nurtures people to be the individuals that they are and gives them the, the relationships in which they are contributing their gifts and receiving from the gifts of others. So that was a new concept for me, if I'm honest. You know, I just, I thought of the church as kind of a delivery mechanism for individual salvation or an individual's walk with, with God or something like that. And I just don't think that that is true to the Bible. Instead, it Can seems, I, go ahead, Ronnie. You know, I've had a certain religious journey. 20 years ago, I was, I was agnostic. I was a cultural Jew, but not a religious Jew. To be fair, dad, we were more observant I mean, you might have been philosophically agnostic, but we were a heck of a lot more observant than just, just someone who uh, was born into a Jewish family. We kept Yeah, but that's because I wanted you to marry a Jewish girl and have Jewish <laughs> children and, uh, you know, not become a Christian and not assimilate and, uh, you know, be. Look, look how that worked out for you. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, the, the ironic thing is that is that you're probably one of the most Jewish people I know of your generation. <laughs> You know, um, you know, which kind of segues into what I was going to get at, um, even though it's not as interesting as what you're talking about. Uh, as I become more religious, the stuff that people focus on, you know, like the miracles in the Bible, uh, how kosher are you? Um, how many times do you go to synagogue or church? That has become for me more and more cosmetic. It's a suit of clothes that fits me well, that I feel comfortable in, but it's not what makes me a religious person. Connecting with God is what makes me a religious person. And the way I connect with God is by treating other people in a way that God wants me to treat them. You know, so to a large extent, the stuff that most people focus on 
in terms of being a Christian strikes me as very accidental, incidental stuff, as opposed to just being a righteous person every single day. And I, I mean, for me, it's very hard. I have to, I have to pray several times every single day, spend a lot of time in prayer and wear a yarmulke to remind me that it's not all about me. It's about everything else but me. It's about my job in the world to make this place a welcome place for God. You know, does God really exist? I think he does, but I don't know for sure. But I can make him exist in the world by being a righteous person and behaving in the way that my Judaism teaches me that I should behave. Well, I, it's, it's funny because I think hearing Ronnie say what he just did reminds me to emphasize uh, for people listening that what I was learning about the importance of community of life among neighbors, how we treat each other. That was in some ways me waking up to the Jewish character of Jesus himself and the Jewish quality of new Testament teaching, which for a variety of reasons had um, simply not become the focus, like Ronnie said, of the sort of Christianity that I had inherited. And so just to come full circle to your question, Corey, this is what made me uh, gravitate to this concept or this word peoplehood, uh, being a people in the world. Yeah. That this is basic to how God is revealed in the world, how God works in the world is by the way that God shapes a particular community of people to treat one another and blesses all peoples in the world with uh, the ability to love one another and to take care of their places and to enjoy uh, their life together. That would be right out of the book of Acts. So, of course, um, this was in a time when the most significant um, kind of way that being a people was talked about in my life was not being the people of God. It was being the people of America. And being the people of America was the basis for all kinds of things that were very influential in our life, like supporting um, the mass killing of other people in warfare, for example, um, of ordering our life among our neighbors in a whole variety of ways, because that was supposedly the American way. And so I, I began to get uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, appalled <laughs> by the way that that had taken control of what it means to be Christian. And so what I wanted to do in my own work was to try to draw uh, from the Bible, but in a way that was mindful of the development of the faith in the history of the United States, draw from the Bible a description of what it means to be the people of God. Not too long after we met, I wanna say late 2002 or 2003, we were already friendly. Um, I think you had come back again and you had given a sermon over the weekends on Romans. And this is when some of um, these very ideas were beginning to boil up in you. Could you tell us a little bit about that sermon? And were you surprised by 
how it was received. Sure. As a missionary who was undergoing the transformation that I've been describing, I was increasingly feeling um, worried, perplexed by the way that my home churches in the U.S. were understanding and practicing the faith that they had sent me to disseminate in other places. And this was in 2004. So it was during the Iraq war. Oh, I, I remember it as leading up to the Iraq, but okay. So it was a little bit later than that. It, yeah. We were already there. Yeah. And, and so I, I felt like in some ways I needed to come clean. Mm. I'd say I, I needed to be more transparent with the people of my own Christian community about what I understood the gospel to be. And so the title of the sermon, if I remember right, was just simply, what is the gospel? Yeah. Um, and I drew the sermon from several passages in Paul's letter to the Romans, which now I still teach at Fuller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a lot of directions I suppose our conversation could take here, but what I wanted to try to bring out was that the gospel is not primarily about an interconnection between an individual person and God or where a person goes after they die, according to Romans or anywhere else in the Bible, but instead about the way that God, uh, through Jesus, is moving to bring healing uh, to the world uh, through communities of people that learn the ways of Jesus as their own. And that means that the gospel makes all kinds of claims, not just about our inner life or where we're going when we die, but how we live as a community in the present, how we treat our neighbors, and especially uh, for Jesus, how we relate to enemies. And uh, so I preached a sermon that attempted to articulate in, you know, 32 minutes and 21 seconds, whatever <laughs> it is, me. And, you know, lots of people gathered, um, tried to articulate that message of the gospel. And I didn't say anything directly about the Iraq war. I never said anything about the president of the United States, although I think it was right after the Democratic Party's national convention. Oh. So a lot of people were, you know, full of thoughts about that. But of course, I, I tried to present the gospel in a way that would enable people to see that it, it made claims about the way that we relate to enemies and therefore um, whether we should be participating in warfare in that way, and if so, how, um, that those were not kind of slam dunk questions that you just do the American thing, but you have to try to think as a Christian about them, and you have to try to think about what is the gospel uh, call us to do, that kind I of thing. I mean, the incredibly ironic thing that strikes me, kind of like a pie in the face, is that when, when I read the Gospels, I read the Gospels a couple of times because my son became a Christian. And I wanted to understand what the gobbledygook was all about. 
Uh, <laughs> I wonder if that's the first time the Gospels are referred to as gobbledygook. <laughs> um, you know, ironically, what I found was something that was explicitly non-political. I mean, unless unless I misread it, it seemed to me that what Jesus was preaching was, you know, politics is for politics. But that's not what we're all about. And yet Christians are so freaking political. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't get that. Well, yeah. there's there's a funny story during the same season, Tommy. Uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, uh, but your, your dad and I, Pastor Tom and I had a really, really great rapport. Uh, that part's not surprising. Uh, but uh, we got to a point where I, I don't know if it was before or after your sermon, but I started noticing what you're talking about, dad. And uh, once so we used to, we went on the Saturday night services. So one Saturday night we drove up and I saw one car in this big old parking lot with a Carrie Edwards bumper sticker on it. Did I ever tell you this, Tommy? Did I? Oh. So I, after, after the sermon, I went up to pastor Tom and I, I was just giving him, I was just joshing him. I, hey, pastor Tom, I don't know if you saw that, but there's a Carrie Edwards bumper sticker tr- pretending, smiling all the way, pretending that it was a big, you know, uh, it was a big conspiracy, not, not, what do you call it? Not a conspiracy, but uh, a big drama. And then he looked at me very gravely. He said, Corey, you're joking, but you know, I've already received a few dozen emails. Pastor Tom, what are we going to do about this? There's a <laughs> bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, well, so, we should, we should did, get back to this because I, I, I want to finish uh, answering your first question. Well, I was going to ask I, you, how, how did your dad... Uh, your dad knew that yeah, you were preaching yeah. what you were preaching. I want to come back to what Ronnie said too oh. afterwards, just to cue you, because I think that Ronnie's um, both right and wrong about what he says about the politics of Jesus in the Gospels. Oh, uh, Dad, if you read I, his book, you got to know that that time he was going to go there, right? Yeah. Anyway, um, so <laughs> back to the story about the um, the sermon. So the sermon was not received very well (laughs) by most of the church. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to analyze that. And I'm sure that in some ways I was a little naive, um, although I think I did expect it to go over pretty badly, if I'm honest. My dad had actually read a manuscript of the sermon before it was delivered. Um, I didn't share that with people because I didn't think that it was right for him to be blamed for allowing me to say what I did. But, you know, long story short, uh, there was quite an outcry against what I had said. A lot of, I think, meetings and discussion about how the elders of the church should respond. And then a really difficult. Specifically, what did they object to? So they, it's a good question, Ronnie. They, they decided to deliver a kind of disavowal of my teaching publicly in all of the services the next weekend. And I don't think that they had the authority probably to make my dad deliver that disavowal personally, but I think my dad felt like it was his bullet to bite. Um, as the kind of head teaching pastor of the church. And so imagine this just uh, agonizing situation where he has to stand before the entire congregation and formally disavow the teaching of his son. And of course, he did it uh, through sobs 
Uh, it was just gut-wrenching. But the disavowal was a statement that he read that I didn't save for posterity, and that's probably wise. But my recollection of it was that it mentioned three key points that the elders of the church oppose what Tommy taught about our country, our president, and the Iraq war. Even though I had actually never mentioned our country, our president, or the Iraq war. But of course, the elders and other people in the church uh, quite rightly, I think, felt that I had said things that had implications <laughs> about those matters. But those were the points of vulnerability that were felt and then held up, you might say, as what the authorities of the church needed to protect, especially against the outcry that they had received and, and felt as kind of overwhelming and demanding a response from them. So I sat in all of those services uh, with Kim uh, because I felt like it was important not to run away. You know, I refused to retract anything that I had said. And uh, I felt like it was important to communicate that I not only wanted to stand behind what I had said, but that I really wanted to pursue further communication about it with people in the church rather than just shoot and run. And my dad did me the kindness of inviting the elders of the church uh, to reach out to me and to speak to me personally. And also, uh, per my request, put my contact information on the slide after the disavowal, inviting people to contact me if they wanted to have any conversation about the subject of my sermon. And uh, so I did have some conversations with people that were really fruitful, um, I think, in the wake of that. But the short answer to how the sermon was received is not well. <laughs> That's like, uh, you know, <laughs> the Jews saying, you know, the Cossacks, not our cup of tea. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it was quite an uproar. But it, to your point, yeah, there, I, I know of some of those conversations. In fact, uh, my dad to this day is, is good friends with Mike Gaston, who I think, if I remember correctly, you had one of those really fruitful conversations. Oh, there was a point that you wanted to circle back to, or did you already do yeah. that? Yeah, well... So I think, and this may be where more broadly you want to take the conversation, but uh, Corey, but Ronnie, to what you were saying earlier, um, I think that you are right that Jesus in the Gospels does not gravitate to the kind of talking points of politics that we are accustomed to in the political system and culture of the United States today. But there's a reason why Jesus ended up executed by the imperial authority of his day and arrested by those that held power from among his own people. And that's because he was saying something and doing something, mobilizing people in a way that threatened the established order. And that, I think, is a political activity. Um, but of course, it's not because uh, he took this or that position on you know, an intense political issue the way that we would often classify politics, it's because what he taught, just like the prophets before him and like Moses, was about how people live their lives together, how they share their lives with each other, how they deal with enemies. And these matters encroached upon those that held power in Jesus's day 
and they felt threatened by that. And that is uh, really the source of the drama that ends up unfolding in the Gospels of him being executed by Roman crucifixion at the end of the story. So I, I think that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that the Gospels are about a figure, Jesus, a way of living, following him, that actually makes claims about how power is shared, about how we share our life with each other, about how we care for each other, how we care for our places, how we deal with enemies. And because of that, it is apt to collide with other political forces in the world. That's not a cheap kind of politics, though, which I think you're rightly saying you don't find in Jesus's teaching. And one of the things that I think we see in the, the evangelical movement in the United States is really no coherent vision of Jesus and the gospel as a certain kind of shared life with one another among neighbors. And because of that, there's a kind of vacuum that then can be easily seized by the political operatives of our day to mobilize evangelical Christians to move in lockstep with uh, public personalities on whom they can project that sense of importance, calling in the world, even if the politics of that figure is not only you know, very unlike the politics that we see Jesus embodying and living, but even diametrically opposed to the way that Jesus taught people to live. Well, you're, you're speaking very generally, and the name of your book is uh, We the People, right? Did I, do I remember that, right? Mm-hmm. We the People, and uh, you speak of this very thing at different points where politicians will borrow the language of the Bible or the language of religion in order to vest it with a certain gravitas, if you will. Um, and it really fools people, I think, you know, to the extent that folks who embody uh, the six things know the seven that God hates, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. or, or is the very opposite of what we think of as the fruit of the spirit, you know, the... Let, let, let politics um so a particular individual uh supports a particular position a political position that is consistent with the theological directive of a religion but he's a horrible human being and is diametrically the opposite of the kind of life that jesus lived and i say that as let, let, let me get, let me give you an example. Uh, Jews who support uh, Trump, for the most part, support him because of his positions on Israel, much like evangelicals support Trump because of abortion. Okay. When I talk to Chabad rabbis, which is where I go, Chabad, uh, about Trump, universally, the response is. Um, a leader is supposed to be humble. A leader is supposed to be submissive to higher values, namely Jewish values. So the fact that he supports Israel is wonderful, but that doesn't make him a righteous leader. And I, 
I don't understand why Christians don't have that kind of nuance in their politics. Yeah, that's that's a good example, I think, Ronnie. And I think the way that you frame that is helpful and maybe helpful to listeners that if you define your political loyalties in terms of this or that position, then you have sold your soul because you will find yourself forced to justify everything that a political platform or political figure does in the name of being able to vindicate that one position that you think is the most important. And this is partly why I think we find um, in the Bible teaching that is not about whether or not you hold this or that position. It's teaching about the overall character, patterns of practice, behavior of people's lives. Uh, The Ten Commandments don't give us a nice, easy position, do they? They give us 10 words, you know, to follow the Hebrew that are to guide all of our life together as neighbors. And if you lose sight of that and begin to define yourself politically in terms of whether or not a party or a candidate has this or that right position, then I think you will find yourself justifying atrocities and being very vulnerable to the seductions of charismatic personalities because you've projected onto that image this sense of this figure is the one that's looking out for us, that's supposedly leading the world in a right direction, and have no sense of the particulars that are involved in leading the world in the right direction, or what kinds of practical commitments every day characterize a society that is moving in the direction of justice and peace that are, as you say, some of the core values, you might say, of the people of God according to scripture. One of the things that I wanted to explore a little bit was the one of the manifestations of what you're talking about is identifying with a particular party or a particular political figure um, to the extent that we also then identify those who are not in our, uh, again, for lack of a better word, tribe as them, you know, so anyone who doesn't sign on to this particular position or with this particular politician is one of them. And then we all of a sudden seem to know everything we need to know about that person. We can put them there. You know, I was in, um, I, I made the mistake again of getting into a dialogue with somebody that I don't have a direct relationship with through uh, our pal Dan Fetters. And he's, he's a great guy, very uh, sensitive and wise and intelligent and caring. But uh, a few of the individuals jumped to conclude, like I expressed my opinion about Trump and based it on why, you know, my biblical reason for it. And some of these folks were making assumptions about who I am. Well, I'm sure he's going to be, you know, somebody said something and then she, uh, she, she finished her comment by saying, I'm sure he's going to be rude to me now. I'm like, how did you, how did you make that conclusion? I, I don't see, but it, it's, it goes to that, that the, the point I'm saying, which is, we sign up, we're all on this team, if you will. We sign on for this position or this politician, 
And if, if you don't, well, you're one of them. And, uh, you know, yeah. you're probably tumbling U.S. Grant's statue and you're probably rude. You probably curse, drink and, you know, and do all those things that Christians just don't do. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the problems um, is that we need to recognize the fact that being tribal is as primal a human inclination as sex and hunger and power and all that other stuff. I mean, being tribal isn't just a manifestation of current politics. It's an essential quality of a human being. Right, but I, I let, don't- Let me finish, like, just, just, yeah. which isn't to say that we have to surrender to it. That's what I was gonna say, thank you. I don't you want know, because- to, I don't want that to be hijacked. I don't want the idea to, to identify as, as a, a special individual within the larger context of a people like you're talking about. I don't want that concept or that notion to be hijacked by, by the abuses of that or, or the uglier versions of that. Well, and honestly, we're not being very just to the actual tribes <laughs> that have lived in the world right? who have been often uh, good examples. I have, I have to find a better word to describe it. But no, I hear you. I mean, I, I get the way that we use that term. So it's, 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 I get it. But I, I guess the thing that I'm maybe trying to clarify is that once you kind of thin out your sense of what a politically just peace-seeking society involves. And once you sort of break down the Bible into a bunch of little pieces that you can sort of pull out as slogans to justify anything that you want, well, then there's nothing holding us back from that polarization that you're describing. You have no nuance. You have no way of sort of seeing the gray, seeing the ways that you are actually uh, related to people that think politically differently than you or something like that. All you can see once you've thinned everything out is how whatever the person says reinforces that they come from the other side kind of thing. And I think that sort of political imagination is a recipe for disaster. I mean, really violent disaster. So it's crucial to cultivate kinds of community in which people um, can actually communicate with more nuance to one another. And this is where I think it's so important for community to be fundamentally local, or as the Bible would talk about in terms of neighbors. I mean, you and I, both of you guys and I have seen on social media how easy it is to demonize someone that you're only going to encounter them in passing online. You share very little of your lives with one another. It's not that that's impossible with real neighbors, but it is a little harder. Yeah. Um, When you actually have to walk your dogs next to each other, encounter one another's children, um, deal with one another's problems much more intimately and see that there are not always the easy solutions that we imagine. Yeah, but it seems to me that If you're a religious person and take religion seriously, take the Bible seriously, you should, you're mandated to treat people that way, whether you're living next door to them or across the world and see them on Facebook. You know, 
it's your obligation to treat people with love. It is. But I think, Ronnie, that loving someone by Facebook is something that we don't have a lot of understanding of. It easily becomes sentimental. The, the kind of love that we have described for us in the Bible has all kinds of practical content. It has to do with how you care for one another's land, how you care for their animals, how you respect their life, um, how you work at the grievances that you have with one another. And I, I think sometimes when we think of how we're going to love people with whom we have precious little ongoing interaction, of course, I think we should work at it. But I think that it's very easy for that sort of love to become sentimental, um, to become very superficial. And Facebook, unfortunately, fosters a lot of communication across that sort of large anonymous scale. And I worry a great deal about our ability to cultivate good character in the way that we interact with people like that. Um, not that we shouldn't. I just think that if that becomes your primary way, for example, of engaging in political debate, wow, you're going to have a hard time uh, seeing the person with whom you're debating in anything remotely like three dimensions. Well, you have to have rules. That's what religion's all about. That's yeah. true. That's true. It's a good point. Um, but I think you can see how even when you have the best rules, we're seeing that, frankly, with the Trump administration itself, right? We've had some good, very imperfect, but I would say institutions that are worth trying to preserve when it comes to the accountability of executive power. And Trump has systematically trampled um, those in his administration. Uh, so even the best rules that we devise without certain qualities or dynamics of community, those rules will be exploited to actually uh, aggravate the injustice that's loose in the community rather than help them address it. Yeah. My, to, to my dad's credit, he and Mike Gaston have had this, I won't say the name of it because it is a secret group. But, uh, <laughs> it's not it's, secret. It's, um, it's yeah, a close group. You have to be invited in. And you have to abide by the rules. Like yeah, no means, right. you know, th they, things that there's some basic set of rules. Uh, you what, what's the one, the, the Baba rule, the, <laughs> what's the Baba rule dead? <laughs> they're all Baba rules. I met, I met Bobby. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, something along the lines, if, if, is, if, if you won't say it with your Baba in the, with your grandmother in the, in the kit, you know, what, how, what is the rule? Come on, help me out. I think you're off base. I think you're falling in love with the cartoon instead of the rules. We have very specific concrete rules in this political group. Yeah. Uh, you can't call people names. Uh, you can't reveal personal information in order to intimidate people. You can't you can't do all. I mean, there's, there's about five or six basic rules that we've come up that we've come up with. You can't have a meme because it doesn't lend itself to conversation. It lends itself to meme wars. We came up with a bunch a bunch of rules just by practice, because the people who did these things were sabotaging. Yeah. The real conversations. And so, there are good uh, conversations on there. You're you're what about seven, eight years in? We're we're seven and a half years in, and we have about two hundred members. And um, good conversations. Yeah. A lot of good conversations. I learn from people that I I disagree with, and and even folks. The strange thing is, I've changed my opinion on certain things. 
they say you <laughs> never change. No one change. No one can change your mind on Facebook. Well, I, oh, I've on. changed my opinion on a bunch of issues. Because when you of, have really smart people, I mean, you're a little bit, a little bit. You're left of center at, at the very least, right? T typically, I'm extreme centrist. Extreme centrist. But there, there are folks on there. Um, men and women who you, you would describe as extremely conservative, but they're really intelligent, gracious, wonderful people uh, that come with information and detail and nuance in their thought. And um, even if we end up still completely disagreeing on a particular issue, uh, it's good to be in conversation with folks you disagree with. You know, for me, there are some folks that are, I'm extreme centrist too, but maybe with a leaning a little bit, you know, more conservative than you pop, but you know, there are some folks that, that are pretty At radical. At least you think you are. I know. <laughs> um, they, we'll, we'll get into that. There's plenty of time to get into that. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll, on a, on a future episode, because we, we want to have you back, Tommy. There's plenty, plenty to talk about. But um, where, where do we go from here? What, where do you see things going from here? And yeah, well, what can we do as individuals or in relationship with our, our family, with our neighbors? What, what are some of those things that we can do for, uh, there's a he, Hebrew, or is it a Yiddish or Hebrew expression, tikkun olam? To mm. do some of That's that Hebrew. Hebrew, yeah, to yeah. do some of that healing work. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that where we go from here is going to vary widely, right? Um, depending on where you're coming from and what challenges you are faced with. I think for me personally, um, the, one of the first things that comes to my mind is I, I wanna cultivate a life that exposes me to people um, from other parts of the social fabric whose experience is very different from mine. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a white guy living pretty comfortably in the environs of Los Angeles. And I think for my participation in my Christian calling, as well as the political challenges of the US right now, California, the city where I live, I've got to try to, you might say, leave the bubble that I am constantly being sort of encouraged to inhabit and to get acquainted with life from other places, life on the other side of the color line that we have built between white and black or between white and people of color more broadly. I think that I've got to uh, be acquainted with people for whom the loss of a job means the loss of healthcare and just absolutely devastating threats over their life. I need to be acquainted with their experience um, so that it informs the way that I participate in the debates about how to distribute power uh, in our time. I obviously think, as you guys will know, that um, you know, I'm working from within the Christian community and we have some really bad disease in our community when it comes, for example, to some of what we talked about in our conversation today with the Bible, where we don't really study the Gospels, as Ronnie was saying. We're not really acquainted with a, a kind of thick picture of Jesus's life. We rush for the slogans 
or the proof texts or the data points that will reinforce what we're already obsessively convinced we're right about. And I think a way forward for me personally is to engage that tendency among my fellow Christians and to encourage a more patient uh, study use of scripture. And of course, to do that study with people that are coming from different places in the way that they read the Bible and to allow their voices and their experience to influence our imagination as we try to make sense of what the Bible teaches. So those are some things that come to my mind. Of course, I think there are things at, say, the national political level that are urgent uh, to address. I hope, um, depending on what happens in November, that there will be uh, some serious effort at uh, better restraints on executive power um, because of what we have seen happen recently. Um, and of course, uh, I think the way that the voice of the people is shaped and gathered, whether it's social media, the lack of hubs for good constructive political conversation, the way that people are reduced in some ways just to their vote, and even that sometimes is taken from them. Um, those are not very good practices of democracy. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I hope that on the national scale, uh, we'll be working harder at nurturing a better culture of democracy that includes a more full participation by people in the governing processes that shape their lives and the lives of their neighbors. Well, one of my hopes with this project is that in small ways, we can do some of that work. Uh, we can have conversations that are unlike the typical conversations you see on Facebook or other social media platforms, you know, because it's, it, it really has disintegrated into rhetorical ping pong at best, if not outright warfare at worst. And I think you can get folks that look different, that have different experiences of different ages that can have meaningful conversations and sow the seeds of meaningful relationship, even if we still disagree and prop whatever, <laughs> you know, um, even if we still will end up voting for a different governor or mayor of our town. I think we can, we can transcend, we can transcend that stuff. And whether we agree or disagree on the, the voting stuff or even theological interpretations or dispositions, I think we can do more important things like nurture relationship uh, and through that relationship and because of our diversity, we can, uh, we, we can get some good work done. We can do some good healing. And that's, I just, I just think it's needed. Every time I turn on Facebook, I'm reminded of how, how much it's needed. So I should probably keep Facebook off a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more often. What do you think, Pop? Well, I mean, my perspective is a little different because I'm 73. <laughs> so I'm looking back more than looking forward uh, in terms of the years I have left. And it's something that I'm experiencing uh, much more lately since the pandemic. I think my job is to be the most righteous person I could be in my little piece of the universe. The ironic thing is how little 
politics affects my day-to-day life. Mm. I mean, my life is filled with people who disagree with me politically and we love each other. And, you know, we go to synagogue together or Phyllis works with them in the food pantry or, um, you know, I see them in the supermarket and we treat each other with, you know, respect and concern and care, you know, so that that's that's what gives me hope. I mean, it's kind of like um, I don't have to worry about what's going to happen to me after I die. That's God's job. That's not my job. My job is to be the best Ronnie I can be right now and everything else will work itself out. You just reminded me of uh, something Jay Cameron Carter said in one of the classes I went to. He he got toward the end of the, the class time and he said something along the lines of all this highfalutin theological stuff is is all well and good. But at the end of the day, if you're if your buddy's grandma's in the hospital, just go to visit her. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the point. The point is, I mean, treat everybody the way you want to be treated. Yeah. Yeah. Now, all this highfalutin theological and political stuff doesn't really mean anything when one of your grandsons wants a driving lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Just just to finish one, Tommy has to come back on again because I have about 16 questions you had to ask him and I didn't ask any of them yet, but uh, (laughs) okay, we'll have to, we'll have to certainly you'll, you'll be uh, part two, part two, (laughs) part two. Maybe we'll do an evening one where we can uh, enjoy a, a, Hopefully an in-person uh, bourbon or something, something really special. Um, one last thing I wanted to bring up, Tommy, you want to tell us about the LA River Project? Yeah, sure. So if people have listened to earlier parts of the conversation, they'll understand why I think uh, it's important for Christians and other people to take seriously the care of the places where they find themselves and by extension, the other places of the world that they're related to. But I live in the Los Angeles area, and uh, it is a river basin that has historically been nurtured by a great river um, that is now straight jacketed in 51 miles of concrete uh, since the 1930s because there was a genuine danger of flooding. But it's really done a lot of harm Uh, to the place where we live and deprived us, I think, of some of the beauty that reminds us uh, that the place where we live is a gift that's worthy of our investment. And to Ronnie's point in the Bible, where you're going to go after you die is especially invested in future generations. Uh, So, Corey, you're where Ronnie's going to go after he dies in the language of the Bible. Um, Not just because you were born from him, but because uh, you are inheriting all kinds of influences and gifts as well as liabilities. uh, Yeah, like high cholesterol. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to Mount Hebron in Queens, Corey, just so you know. Anyway, uh, the, the river for me in Los Angeles is just a way to kind of center our focus on taking care of our place Um, because the river is an artery of life. Uh, for the place where we live. And uh, I don't want to obsess about the river to the exclusion of other things, but I think that the River Project, LA River Project, is a worthy investment 
um, because of how it's invested in our place and not oblivious to what you might call some of the social and the economic dynamics of uh, the river. Uh, because the way the river flows affects how wealth is distributed uh, historically. And in the future, um, as the river is restored, there are going to be all kinds of challenges for whether or not the benefit of the river is shared justly um, by the population, by neighbors. And I want to pursue the restoration of the river, not just ecologically, but also uh, socially, so that the fabric of people that live in the vicinity of it um, enjoy the blessings of it in a way that's just. For those who are interested in learning more, you can either just look up LA River Project or you can go to theriverproject.org. That's theriverproject.org. Tomas, gracias. My pleasure, Corey, Ronnie. Uh, you guys are a gift uh, to me. I'm thankful for your friendship and your thoughtfulness. I can't wait to do this in person, man. Oh, me too, man. Instead of sitting here in this make-believe cocktail bar, what did you <laughs> Right on. Thanks, Dad. Good to see you. Thank you. Send love to mom. You got it. Tommy, love to the family. Same to yours. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.